This morning's sermon comes from Isaiah 40, verses 27 through 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Uh, don't know if y'all caught this or not, but even in those brief few verses, you heard or saw the word faint, grow weary, or some sort of derivative of uh, exhaustion. And that's the overwhelming uh, emphasis of this narrative. It's where's hope for a faint, weary people? And I'm going to pray for us as we dive into that and pray that God would encourage a faint, weary people like myself and uh, probably like many of us. Let's pray. Father, um, life is exhausting, even if things are going well for us, Lord, we still hit the bed uh, in desperate need of sleep. Um, you cause our bodies to rest to remind us that we aren't God. And Father, for Israel and for so many, uh, we battle with dethroning you and thinking that somehow we are uh, better stewards of our life than you are. Father, would you send your spirit to encourage us and help us to see you? Would you forgive us? Of our sins and me, especially, Father, and help us to see you and you only. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Struggling with despair and sadness was where Stella Thorne Hope was. She was experiencing her first Christmas alone as a widow. That previous summer, her husband had passed away from a long battle with cancer, and she was in a state of despair, so much so that she didn't want to decorate for the holidays. She felt that life would be better served uh, in darkness and alone because she didn't have much reason for hope. It was several days before Christmas, and she got a knock on the door, and at the door there was a delivery boy, and he had a box with him. She invites him in because there was a massive snowstorm happening. She was uh, experiencing horrible conditions outside of her home and inside of her home. She brings the delivery boy in, and uh, he asks her to sign off on this box. Well, uh, trying to figure out what's happening, why this box was shaking, she said, what's in the box? And she signs, he smiles, and he opens the lid of the box, and out comes this golden retriever puppy. And she looks at this puppy, stunned and amazed. She had always wanted one of these puppies. And inside of it, um, inside of this box, there was a letter to her, and she's asking this boy, who in the world gave me a puppy for Christmas? He said, well, check the letter. It's all an explanation there. Uh, but you'll know that he's eight weeks old, he's been to obedience school, he's house-trained, and here's the book for you to teach you how to care for your golden retriever puppy. Stunned and holding this little puppy, he's licking her all over the face like little puppies do, and she's smiling and excited for the first time in a long time, and she's repeatedly asking this delivery boy, where in the world did this puppy come from? Stella found hope and joy 
in the middle of despair. And for most of us, when we experience times of pain or despair, we're always looking for hope that's everlasting. And this is where Israel was in our text this morning. They were in a place looking for hope amongst all of their despair. And Isaiah is writing to them in chapter 40 saying, God is your source of hope. It's basically the question, how? How is God our source of hope in times of despair? How is God hope for us? Two things we'll see in this text. First, God is hope for us because He meets us in our circumstances. And not only does God meet us in our circumstances, but we'll see secondly that God meets us with His Spirit in the middle of those circumstances. So God meets us where we are, and He sends His Spirit to meet us no matter where we are. And we see God meet us in our circumstances in verse 27. Look at the text with me. It says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? Notice in this just briefly that this is assuming God's hearing their prayers. God's responding. He's hearing them. And he says in response to their prayers, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Verse 27, as you'll quickly see, is a verse of despair. This is highlighting what's going on in Israel's life. Now, historically, as Isaiah was writing this, Israel has been in exile for decades. Their children have grown up in this exile condition. All they know is pain, despair. They are searching for hope. They have, in their limited view, they have no reason of hope for a better tomorrow. And it's bubbling up with this question. It's really an accusation. This is a legal uh, kind of inquiry that they're laying before God's feet. They're essentially saying, God, do you love me anymore? God, have you forgotten about me? Is there no justice for us? Have you forgotten your covenant love for us? How familiar that lament is. Where have we heard that lament before in the text? Think back to the Garden of Eden. Think about in the sinless condition where Adam and Eve were living with God, full of harmony. The serpent comes to them and says to them, Did God really say? Casting little bits of doubt and life. Really, what Satan was encouraging Adam, Adam and Eve to think about does God really love you? If God really loved you, you would have no parameters to happiness. You would get to do whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do it. Therefore, because God has some prohibition in your life, He's not for you. He doesn't love you. Adam and Eve had the best of all circumstances. But they had a fickle faith. And this fickle faith was fueled and fertilized by the poison of the serpent that made them call into question God's call into question God's love for them. And this same venomous poison is bubbling up in Isaiah in the text this morning. In verse 27, out of their despair and their sadness, they're crying out, God, do you love me? Israel's following Adam and Eve's playbook. They had once had a season of blessing. They had once had a season where things were going well. They were living in the land 
promise to them, flowing with milk and honey. They were living in God's goodness and grace in their promised land. But their time of joy and blessing allowed them to become complacent in their faith. They stopped searching for the Lord. They stopped following His instructions. They turned from the giver and source of life to the father of lies. And what was the result, y'all? They did get life. They got despair. They got brokenness. They were exiled from the garden and from Canaan. They are following Satan's playbook here. And all the meanwhile, blaming someone else for the consequences of their sins. Following sound advice is necessary for us to live a healthy life a lot of times. This reminds me of the story uh, of Jeremy Ratcliffe. Jeremy was attending his garden and he was harvesting his crops. And he noticed uh, during his, his gathering that there was a diamondback rattlesnake right in front of him. Now, like any sane human being does, you grab whatever long object you have around you and you bludgeon that snake to absolute death. And that's what he did. And not only that, he cut the snake's head off just to make sure he's dead. Now, if you were raised in any rural area, area, you've heard this saying, you never touch a dead snake until the next morning. There's some sort of little saying for it, I don't remember it. But the wisdom is you don't touch a dead snake until the next day. Why? Well, snake ha- snakes have reflexes that still shoot uh, even after they're dead for several hours. Jeremy knew this advice. But after killing the snake, he threw the body away, and then he went and grabbed the head, and the head latched onto his hand, bidding, and he couldn't shake the snake. Now, Jerry, in the face of good advice, did what was uh, ill-advised, so to say. What was the result of this? He spent well over two weeks in intensive care. He had kidney and liver failure. His body was shutting down all over. He had to have 26 doses of antivenom pumped through his system, and through two weeks in ICU and then multiple weeks of recovery inside of the hospital, he finally survived. Now, what's the point of the story? See, Jeremy knew better. But in the face of clear direction, he thought he knew what was better for his life, and it almost cost him his life. And I use this story because it has a biblical undertone to it. You see, Satan's power was drastically reduced at the cross. When when Jesus died on the cross, he dealt a death blow to Satan. His power has been drastically reduced, but Satan can still cause a lot of damage, primarily in the lies and the venom that he spews about who God is. And one of the primary ways we know that Satan is attacking us is we start to question, does God really love me? Is God here for me. And if the venom of these lies aren't destroyed and washed out by the power of God's word, it can absolutely destroy us. So how do you think God responds to Israel's legal questioning of his goodness? After centuries of caring for them and being with them every step of the way, he watched them turn their backs on him how do you think God responds to their despair? Look at verses 28 and 29. He says, Have you not known? 
Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Now, before we started, I mentioned all the faint and weary texts. You notice them even here. God is not faint or weary. And all of these defeated expressions are rooted in forgetting who God is. That's what was happening with Israel. That's what happened with Adam and Eve, and that's what happens in our own lives. When we forget how good and powerful and present God is, it's very easy to slip into despair. This is a cautionary tale for us because church were blessed in so many ways. It's easy for our seasons of blessing to bring us into a time of complacency where God's word starts to be eroded by the promises of this world. Let's learn from it and not abandon God. Let's not turn from God in our seasons of blessing, but press into the Lord and his relationship with us so that we don't end up bankrupt and full of despair. Now it begs the question for all of us, though. We are a, a blessed church, but if we survey all of y'all here, those watching online, you've probably experienced some element of despair this week. You might be facing the holidays alone this year. You might be facing sickness, loss, brokenness. You might even be having a wonderful season, but you look at the news headlines. You see what's going on in the world, and it causes us to ask, man, is everything going to be okay? What in the world is happening? People seem divisive. There's brokenness. Life is very hard. How did we get to this place? I want us, if we're ever experiencing that, to be reminded about who God is. What's the answer? What's the uh, Holy Spirit fueled answer that's going to right all of our wrongs this morning? Here's the answer to this. God is the everlasting God. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary, though we will, over and over. His understanding is unsearchable. God is present. It doesn't matter where you think you are in the middle of your relationship with God. God is always present and He's always ready to answer us and be with us. You see, the antidote to despair is to turn to God in His Word because it's in His Word where He tells us who He is and what He's done for us. And it's in God's Word where it's alive and active where He's reminding us that He's present with us, that he's ready to meet our needs. And guess what? He has you right where he wants you. Regardless if this is where you would uh, desire where your life should be, God has you right where he wants you. And that's at the end of yourself. God wants you at the end of your road because that's where we come to him with expectations of meeting him in his mercy and grace. At the end of our road, we see that we don't have any strength. 
And we ask for him to come and help us. The Apostle Paul knows this well, and he tells us this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. Look there. He says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What's our encouragement then out of this? What's our encouragement in the face of despair? It's to turn to God, but we need to stop trying to live out of our own strength, y'all. Stop trying to manhandle every circumstance that you're in. Stop trying to manipulate people, places, and things just to give you a semblance of rest. Come to the place of humble reliance upon God. Submit to Him for His direction in your life. Don't let your submission be just in word service. Submit to Him in everything, not just the big decisions, but in folding laundry and washing dishes and every meeting and every engagement you have, even with somebody at the grocery store, submit to Him and everything that you do and watch Him meet you with His peace. Why, though? It's easy for somebody like me to be up here and tell us all to do this. But the big question is why, and I better have a really good why this encouragement. Why should you submit to God? It's fair. It's because God loved you enough to see you in the depths of your sin and to willingly send His Son to come back. That's the why. Because God loved you so much that Jesus wouldn't just face a quick uh death injection with some sort of chemical, he had a laborious, exhausting, torturous death on your behalf. That's why we can submit to him. Jesus is saying, I love them so much, I'm going to die for everything that they're ever going to do, and I'm going to prove that I'm big enough to carry their weight on my shoulders, because the cross and the grave is not going to stop me. I'm going to rise from the dead and prove to them I'm big enough to carry all of their burdens, and... I'm going to send the Holy Spirit as the guarantee and the proof to make them strong so that they can be with me forever. That's the why. God proves his love for us. God proves that he is here for us because Jesus has resurrected, because he sends his spirit to encourage us. And the proof of that is to look around and look at the Christian community around you. You're not in this life alone. This season, you're not alone. You're surrounded by people who are probably going through the same things you're going through in their ear to help carry you and to lift you and to point your eyes to Jesus. That's the beauty of Christian community. That's why we were intended to engage with these letters together. This is why we meet for corporate worship. This is why we have community groups. We need each other, church. You're not intended to live this life alone. You need God's Spirit to help you, and you need this family surrounding you. Practically, 
what do we do? If you're going through pain, if you're facing despair, I don't care if it's the Bluetooth in your car's not connecting to being alone for the first time ever because your spouse is dying. Look around this room. Identify people in this church that have that steadfastness, that peace that passes understanding. Go seek them out. Find out why are they calm all the time. Find out why they seem unshakable. Get time with them and ask them to, to tell you how the Holy Spirit has been with them in their lives. Those of you who have been through the ditches and have come out on the other side, you have a responsibility to seek out the next generation and to build up the next generation because they're going to go through the same things that you're going to go through. We have a responsibility to care for each other through seasons of despair because despair isn't the end of our story. This is why we do this. The Holy Spirit meets us in our circumstances. So we ask, how in the world does God give us hope? God meets us in our circumstances, but like our unshakable brothers and sisters around us, we have His Spirit that meets us as well. We see that in verses 29 through 31. Keep with me there. It says, He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, and they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. What? They wait for the Lord to get strength? We'll come back in just a second. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What a beautiful promise. Now, if you think back to Israel, as we mentioned just a few moments ago, they are in decades of despair. They're living in house arrest. They are treated very unkind. They don't have a lot of hope by just looking around uh, horizontally. There's not a lot of hope there. Their lives were full of despair because they forgot who God was. Now, God comes to them in the middle of their circumstances, reminds them who he is, and it takes their eyes off of the temporary and focuses it on the eternal. And the big question is, how does God do that? He says he does it, but what's the power to fuel the ability to stop looking at uh, one tree in the forest and to focus on the big picture, to focus on eternity? Where's the power for this? It comes through the power of God's Spirit. Paul tells us this in Ephesians 1. He says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you heard it and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is what? He is the guarantee of our inheritance. Until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, what the Holy Spirit does for us in the face of despair, as we live lives in an oftentimes broken and frustrated world, what the Holy Spirit does is strengthen us and encourage us, and he keeps our eyes focused on the future that is to come. The Holy Spirit keeps our eyes focused to the end of the story. That is, God's people will reign. 
we will be secure with Jesus forever. God's Spirit gives us hope. In the face of all the despair, God gives us Himself, gives us the Spirit as an insurance, as, as a force field, so to speak, to fill us and to keep us full of hope, even in the middle of worse circumstances. Paul tells us in Romans 15, he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of who? The Holy Spirit. You may abound in hope. That you may abound in hope. Why does this matter? Why does the Holy Spirit's hope matter to us? Because without the Holy Spirit indwelling you, and this you can't manufacture. You can fake Christianity for a long time, y'all. But if you don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you will not have sustaining eternal Hope. You will not have sustained hope. So what does sustaining hope of the Holy Spirit look like? How do you know if you have the sustaining hope? Look at verse 31. It says, but they who wait, you don't like that word, I don't like that word. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Holy Spirit hope looks like waiting for the Lord. What's Isaiah teaching? What Isaiah is teaching is what Jesus knew has been told over and over. We are a people that live by faith and not by sight. We're a people that live by faith and not by sight, which is really practical with this. We are a people that live by promises, not by explanations. You need to hear that loud and clear. We are a people that live by God's promises, not by explanations. It's not that we don't have enough evidence or reason to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, but we have a life that necessitates that we cling to the promises of God, and we can't do that long term without the Holy Spirit living in us. This is why verse 31 shines so bright in this text about despair. Israel's waiting turned into despair because their waiting was divorced from Holy Spirit-fueled hope. It was divorced from the Holy Spirit. And waiting, fueled by the Holy Spirit, it doesn't end in hopelessness and despair, but it ends in action. Waiting for the Holy Spirit in this text is a verb. To wait with God's Spirit indwelling you is action as a Christian. You need to hear this. Waiting, I'm defining it this way, is the faithful, eager expectation of God to fulfill His promises in your life. I'm going to say that again. Waiting and trusting in God is the faithful, eager expectation of God to fulfill His promises in your life. One early church father said, it's like waiting on your tiptoes for God to do something in your life. Why? Because He promised it. So what are some promises of God that we can rest our heads on this morning? Look at several here. Deuteronomy 31.8 says, It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. 
Do not fear and be dismayed. It's beautiful. Here in Matthew 11, come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You can take a nap all day long and still have a despairing, weary soul. Resting is much more than napping. It's meeting Jesus and waiting on his promises with the Holy Spirit. The last one, John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So why am I sharing all these promises with you? Because we need to know them. Life is complex. Life is hard. Life is challenging. And for most of us, we're going to live ordinary lives. We're going to be forgotten in a few generations. And we'll notice the older we get, the shorter that life seems to be. The older we get, the more life just seems to fly by. Why? Why is life like this? If you've never asked this question, I encourage you to wrestle with this. The Christian worldview states that life is like this because all of the good, bad, happy, and sad is always meant to point you somewhere else. All of the goodness, all of the happiness, all of the memories, they even fade. Because nothing in this world is meant to eternally satisfy us. But Jesus was. We're always meant to be looking somewhere else. And Jesus knew this. So he gives us his Holy Spirit after he ascended to comfort us and strengthen us and to give us courage and boldness and hope while we wait for our future home with him. Before the delivery boy left, Stella asked one more time, who gave me this puppy? Little boy turned and said, it was your husband. And what his husband did was, uh, met with the kennel owner several weeks before he died. He knew his time was short, and he wrote his wife a love letter before he passed. And he instructed the kennel owners to come care for this dog, raise it up, make sure it's in the best of obedience, and to give her this letter. The puppy was a gift to encourage her and to strengthen her. And the letter is something that she could tangibly turn to to be reminded that, what? Her husband loves her. That he can't wait to be with her again. That she will be strong enough to face this because of her relationship with Jesus. To not turn to despair, but to turn to the Lord. God does the same thing with us, church. He knew life would be difficult for us. He knew that we wouldn't be able to face this on our own. Because there's going to come a time in human history where your hour will come where you will have nobody but Jesus. No loved one, no friend, no spouse, no puppy is going to be able to take away the shadow of death. But only one person will be there, and that's the resurrected King of Kings, and that's Jesus. Jesus knew we would need that hope, so we sent his spirit as our inheritance to strengthen us and to tell us that he loves us. And he gave us letters to strengthen us 
and encourage us and to tell us that He will never leave us or forsake us. Church, my encouragement to you is spend time in that word. Read those letters about how God loves you. Spend time in community that helps lift your eyes off of the pain and focuses on the horizon where we're all going. And the end of that story for God's people isn't one of despair, it's one of hope. And God promises to give us everlasting hope even in the middle of worst circumstances. How? Because He's with us now, He's conquered, and His Spirit is with us to comfort us always. Father, this is the season of perpetual hope. It's not going to be found in presents under the tree. Christmas carols and songs is going to be found in you. All of the songs and gifts and longing that we experience is all uh, uh, given to us by you to help us to cling to you. And the beautiful thing is once we cling to you, we can enjoy the songs and presents even more. Because we know that they aren't the source of everlasting hope, but they're little glimpses of what you've promised us in your word by your spirit that you're with, with us. That you are the giver of all good things. That the end of the story for us isn't death, but life everlasting. Because you are the firstborn from the dead, Jesus. Help us to believe that good news. Give us wisdom to trust your word for our lives. May we, even in seasons of blessing, continue to hunger for your word. May we not be distracted by fool's gold. We pray this in